Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 59 of the Speaking Club podcast. I was a bit perplexed this week because I can't understand how Cambridge Analytica managed to take out malicious Facebook adverts that influenced elections when my ads got banned by Facebook for using the word peacock. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, welcome to the show. So today I'm going to be talking to Charles Hanna. He's an entrepreneur, an author and a speaker, and he's been on a bit of a journey. And I was intrigued when I found out about him, about some of the things that he teaches about how to live our most powerful life. We're going to get into beliefs, mindset, some of the massive lessons he learned from his own life, and of course, speaking too. Let's go over to the interview with myself and Charles Hanna. Welcome to the show, Charles Hanna. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. What I wanted to ask you first of all, you've you've been, I mean, I've read a lot about you and, and watched videos and all sorts, and it looks like you've been on quite a journey. And I wondered if you could sort of give a, a bit of background on, on what's happened in your life and what set you on the path to where you are and what you do today. Okay. Um, first of all, I was born in Egypt back in 1952 in a, what you would consider kind of an upper middle class, very religious family as Egypt is in general quite religious at that time. Um, beautiful childhood, um, beautiful parents, except that there was one thing that happened to me that's unusual, and that is that shortly after I was born, my older sister died. She was about seven years of age. That impacted me in the sense that my mom was really unable to care of me for almost a year out of grieving. Mm-hmm. And so my nanny took care of me. Um, about a year later, the nanny was dismissed because my mom realized that she's going to be losing me too. I did not want to reach for her at all. So I guess as a child, I, I, I suffered from that feeling that I lost my mom. Yeah. Uh, but it went on. And another year after that, my mom had another child. And maybe that took some attention away from me that I needed. Um, but then there was another child, another sister that was born. And we started to have happiness and joy in the family again. And I was particularly connected to my youngest sister. But unfortunately, when I was seven years old, she, at the age of three, died suddenly. She had a Mm. fever on a Friday. She passed away on the Monday. And it was just devastating, of course, to the family. Um, I missed her directly. I felt that directly. So throughout my early childhood, despite the love of my parents and despite everything else, I guess I grew up believing that I cannot trust the people I love will be there. That really shaped a lot of my life going forward. And it made me feel uh, wanting to be independent and not rely on anyone. And throughout my life, I just wanted to be independent and free. And I didn't really want to need anybody else. Anybody else also need me. But apart from that, everything was fine. We immigrated to Canada when I was about 15, 16. 
Um, I had never felt less than, but for some reason, I had this incredible ambition to never feel needy. And um, I had a good direction in my life. I went on with my education. I did exceedingly well. And to make a very long story short, I became very, very successful in North America. I started my own IT company. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met somebody that I loved very much, even though I was very afraid to trust anyone. I just felt I could trust her implicitly. And by the time in my late 20s, I had dozens of people working for me. Uh, I started to make millions of dollars. Um, I had friends. I had employees that uh, I inspired. Uh, I was interviewed a lot across Canada for one of the fastest growing companies in a very tough environment. So everything seemed great. You know, I was very happy, very proud of myself. And, uh, and I also felt that I can accomplish anything I wanted. And then things happened. I started to feel it was not enough, like something was missing. And, um, and I started to dabble in recreational drugs as a means of maybe getting that extra high or that extra satisfaction that I seem to be missing for some reason. And at the same time, other things happened in my life that I felt people were maybe not appreciating me or betraying me or one thing led to the other. Things just spiraled out of control. And, um, and then things started to fall away and my marriage started to fall apart. And I felt like I was betrayed in a manner that I never thought I would subject myself to. So I found myself, even though I started life thinking I'll always be independent and alone, I found myself in a situation where now I am married, I have family working for me, I have friends, I have employees that I'm responsible for, and almost like I'm in the exact position that I never wanted to be in in the first place. And on top of that, I was not really happy, but I had all these things to worry about. And with the breakup of my marriage in particular, I could not handle the feelings and I ended up diving deeper into the drugs. And the harder I tried to control it, the worse it got. And it got to the point where I couldn't see a way out of it. And I was completely confused. I didn't understand why I was doing this to myself. I didn't understand why I could not just stop friends and family around, you know, could not understand why I would do it. I lost the respect of people around me. I lost my own self-respect and I felt really, really helpless. Like I was living a nightmare that I could not wake up from. So it was very, very confusing for me to get to that stage despite my successes and all the things that were going for me. Why did this happen to me? The fortunate part for me is that I was humbled enough to be able to accept help. And through that help, I gained a different insight about life. And it completely changed my core beliefs and the way I looked at life. And actually, it's almost like I started reprogramming from scratch, started to look at life in a very different way. The things that I valued, the things that I was reaching for, the things that I felt would make me happy, had a completely different outlook from that point onwards. And I started to build with a very strong spiritual foundation. You see, the thing is, I grew up in a very religious family but I completely turned my back against religion when I came to Canada because the traditions here were different than there. And also I learned a lot of science. My education is all science and I did not believe in what religion was teaching me. So I became an atheist Mm -hmm. and I was very much against that. The unfortunate thing is that I threw out the baby with the bathwater. Like as I threw out religion, I also threw out the concept and my grounding with a God of my understanding or any understanding. 
that's one of the things that I really learned that I had to reconnect into something that's bigger than myself to realize that the world is not about me. It's not happening to me. It's not because of me. It's going to go on with or without me. And I need to be part of it and feel like I am a wanted and loved part of it. So that, that was one of the foundations that I started to develop and change in my core belief that really set the stage for me from that point onwards to find happiness in a very different way. And also, ironically, become even far more successful than I ever have before in business because I was much more grounded as a person. Today, I believe that our cardinal duty and responsibility in life is to take care of ourselves and to pass on what we learned. And that's what I have done by writing the book is to pass on what I learned in my life and how I take care of myself and how I have found this greater joy and happiness that I think can maybe help a lot of people as we look around these days and see so many are lost and self-destructing people that seem to have everything. Why would they go on that? Like what happened to me? And the answers are actually quite simple, but not necessarily easy to implement. Cool. And I want to talk about the book higher um, in a little bit, but let's just, so how long was that period where you effectively self-sabotaging five years, 10 years? Yeah, actually, I was not somebody that ever touched drugs or alcohol at a young age, as most people that have addiction problems do. Uh, when I came from Egypt, I, you know, I did not touch anything. It was not really until the age of maybe 20 mm-hmm. when I dabbled in uh, just smoking marijuana once a month. That's about it. In my mid-20s, I started to have my first coffee and drink. Um, and then shortly after that is when I started, when I was about 26 or 27. And initially, of course, it was a lot of fun. It was a euphoria, and I enjoyed it for maybe a period of about five years. And then I started to see that it was getting out of hand. And from there was another approximately four or five years of rapid descent. And, and it got worse and worse at a, at a much rap, more rapid rate. And so did, I, Sorry, did you get to the point where you lost? Every, I mean, you know, your, your marriage broke up. How did it affect your business as well? I, I tried to save the marriage, and in retrospect, I realized right now that there was no point me trying to save anything if I don't save myself first. Yeah. But I almost like stretched everything to the limit. So I came very close to losing, losing the business completely, hurting my child, which I had at the time, a, a three or four-year-old child by the time I, I finally stopped. Uh, my business, for example, I had branches across Canada, and um, I had people that stole all sorts of equipment across Canada, people that left the company, stole customer information, contacted my customers, told them that I am addicted on drugs and to not do business with me. So there was tremendous damage that was taking place. And I did not even realize the extent of the damage until after I kind of recovered and woke up to what was going on. But I, uh, I did not quite lose it completely. Though when I set on my path of recovery, I was told to let it go. The chances I will not be able to save it, but I really was determined to save it, which I did uh, by working very close to my recovery program. So I I did not quite lose it, but I did lose a lot in the process. My health, my family, damage to my, my child, my relationships, my family, like I disconnected with my family completely and friends and so on. Pushing everyone away, basically. Yes, and, and uh, yeah, out of humiliation, out of hurt, out of feeling betrayal, out of disappointment, out of being consumed in my own self, uh, you become very, very isolated when you get to that stage. So it's interesting, I mean, you say, I guess, I just wanted to sort of 
check this with you. So you say that, you know, one of the reasons that you sort of fell into that addiction, I mean, obviously there was all the things that happened when you were younger and it was a form of protection in terms of, you know, sort of pushing people away, but, but you talk about looking after yourself. And I guess, do you mean like putting the oxygen mask on so that you can look after yourself and then, and then look after other people? Because in some ways, when you were in that spiral of addiction and, and you were, you were self-absorbed, I guess, but it's a different way of looking after yourself. Is that, can you explain that to me, the two, the two sides of that? Yes. What I meant earlier on when I talked about taking care of ourselves is that I feel our duty in life, we have been given this gift of life. Someone, something gave us this gift of life. We all walk around with the illusion that we own ourselves, that somehow we are responsible for creating ourselves. And we deserve credit for the things that we are good at. And we should be kind of not so proud of our shortcomings and we should do everything we can to feel recognized and have people admire us for what we do and it's all an illusion this life is a gift of us and when you receive a gift what's the one way to show gratitude for that really is to take care of it be grateful about it make sure that it's that you're in good shape and in addition to that we are part of something that is incomprehensibly large I cannot understand what the meaning of life is. You look at the stars, you look, it's infinite in space and so on. I cannot really change it or control it. So part of my belief is that I really, all I can do possibly is to just take good care of myself and trust that the world is going to move me in the right direction. So when I say take care of yourself, I mean physically, definitely. You have to eat well, you have to rest well, you have to exercise, you have to get checked out if there's something wrong. Don't procrastinate. Always that, very important. But also your mental health. And there are specific steps that you can do to be mentally healthy. For example, having friends and being connected to people, having very close friends that you can share your most intimate secrets with, to not have anger inside you and resentment and regrets and worry and all of these things that come from also believing in a spiritual and being part of something that's bigger. And then in addition to that, you need to live life and enjoy it. If you have the gift of sight, enjoy your sight, your smell, your hearing, your tasting, your company of people and so on. Make sure that you live your life to the fullest. And if you do all of that, then you can do something extra, like try to build on something or, or help others and so on. But I'm a true believer that if you just focus on helping yourself, you will automatically help others in the best way possible without ever having to do that directly. Cool. Thank you for that. And, and why do you think, I, you know, it's happened so many times, you know, I, I've studied people like Eckhart Tolle and Byron Katie and lots of people that hit rock bottom. I mean, it wasn't quite rock bottom, although it sounds very close with you. And I just wonder why it takes us to hit that sort of pit before we learn what's really important in life. If, if you've got a a sort of view on that, you know, why we can't just do it, you know, without having to t- take that, make those drastic, you know, changes in our lives. Yes, absolutely. You see, I think that be it addiction or other aspects that may affect us mentally, either by depression or whatever it may be, it's based on our perception. And our perception is based on our core beliefs. You have to change the core beliefs to change your perception on life. But we are very resistant to that as human beings. So something has to happen to us that makes us question those core beliefs. And the deeper the damaging core beliefs are, the deeper that bottom has to be. 
Now, rock bottom, by definition, is a place that you reach where you will do anything to try to recover from it. And for many people, that rock bottom is actually deeper than they are capable of reaching. And a lot of people die before they ever hit that rock bottom where they say, okay, I give up, I surrender, help me through this. Because there is help, but people don't accept it because they haven't reached that rock bottom. So I think it's a matter of perception. My core belief, for example, was the fact that I am on my own. I have to help myself. I cannot trust that the world is going to be there for me, that the people that will love me will be around. And on that basis, my personality was built as a very young child. I almost had to reach back all the way to that and re-question that core belief, which meant re-examining my concept of the existence of a God or a higher power, whatever you may want to call it. And I would never, ever have done that had I not reached that place of complete desperation saying, okay, I am willing to try anything. Tell me what to do. And even then, I couldn't actually mentally consider the concept and I had to fake it until I actually made it. Uh, interesting. Because there's so, I mean, there's so many decisions that we make when we are, you know, in those formative years as children. And, you know, many of us don't know the impact that those decisions have on the way that we live our lives. You know, obviously it had a massive impact on you. And then I think it does day to day. And um, I want to say, is that perception, um, you mentioned in, in higher about perception disorder. Is that what you were just talking about? Is that, is there a way that we can find out these sort of issues that we've got without hitting rock bottom so that we can avoid it? Is that what you help people to do? Yes. I think my experience directly with addiction and that of many people who are recovering from addiction is that addiction is a disease of perception. It's how we see life that gets us into trouble. I refer to it in the book as a perception disorder. Mm. Now, it affects almost everybody to varying degrees and in various ways, but it's just the way you look at life. And it's when something happens to you as a child that makes you afraid or reluctant or you need to control your environment and so on, you really start looking at life from your perspective. It becomes a very self-centered view. We all have to have that to some extent, but when it's too much, that's when it hurts. For example, I talk about an, an example. If you have a partner and they say to you, for example, that they want to speak to their best friend and they want to do that alone, they need to speak to that person alone. If you have that sort of perception problem where you think, well, this is what's wrong with me? Like, why doesn't she want me there? Why doesn't she trust me? Uh, is she going to talk about me? Is, is she unhappy with me? I'm consumed by what it means to me, whereas it may have nothing to do with me. But when I have that perception, I start becoming mistrustful, becoming anxious. And, and whether I show it immediately or not, it does come through in my feelings. And it may be triggered by other things that may reinforce that feeling. So I end up reacting in ways that are not natural or that are not conducive to good relations with people. And they, it affects my bond with people. And that can start from very early. And it does start at a very young age. And children that have that, you know, issues that really give them that need to be afraid or hesitant or they see themselves as being different from other people, it breaks their human connections. And over time, you become increasingly isolated and increasingly afraid and more trying to control your environment. And you dig yourself deeper and deeper into this hole of isolation that inevitably will make you very, very unhappy. Addiction, in my opinion, is an extreme manifestation of perception disorder. In other words, when it, when it is at the extent that eventually becomes so unhappy in life, you will become isolated. And, and, and 
in the more milder forms of perception disorder, you will simply find yourself eh, living from day to day, but you don't really see the joy in life. Like, what's it all about? As you progress more, you might become more depressed, isolated, angry, often kind of like remorseful about what could have been, would have been, and so on. As you get more into it, you become kind of like a depressed person. You start isolating, you get into mental illness, deep depression, and then addiction is one of those extreme manifestations of it. So I guess going back to your question, which I can't even remember now. <laughs> about how can we, can we see these things before we... You know, can we, is there a way that we can become aware of how we're viewing the world before we hit that rock bottom or before we become aware of, of you know, or become addicted to something? Yes, there are many tools that can help you. For example, if you want to know if you have an addiction of some sort, there are all sorts of questionnaires. There's like a famous 20 questionnaire, uh, 20 question questionnaire that tells you if you have an addiction or not. For example, um, when you drink alcohol, do you ever hide it? You know, like if you don't have a problem, for example, eating chocolate, you're not going to go into the closet and eat chocolates without showing it to anybody. <laughs> it's like you're looking at me. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so a lot of people do that and don't think there's anything wrong with it. They just don't want to create hassle. They don't want to create a problem. They want to have, create an excuse, but they don't realize that that is actually a sign that there's something that's a problem and it's growing. And addiction, like perception disorder, is a progressive disease. It gets worse as time goes on. So that's one question can show you whether you are on your path to something that you need to arrest. In terms of perception disorder, which may not necessarily translate into addiction eventually. And addiction, by the way, is not just substance abuse. It's also compulsive behavior. As you said, could be sex, could be being workaholic, could be gambler, could be obsessive compulsive behavior, could be, you know, also the mannerism that become very compulsive in nature. Uh, one easy way that I find if somebody has a perception disorder, I ask them this question is, are you happy? Are you excited about life? Do you get up in the morning and you can't wait for how the day is going to unfold? If you don't feel that way, there's something wrong in your perception of the world. Now, we all have tragedies and we all go through some issues here and there, but we recover from them. But if our normal state of being over a prolonged period of time is that we are not happy or we lost the joie de vivre, then chances are we do have that perception issues. And if we correct it, it can make a big difference on how happy we can live our life and how much we can contribute to the people and the environment around us. And how, when you got help, it, was it what sort of help did you get to to get out of that situation? Was it counselling or, or 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 something specifically for the addiction? How did that work for you? Yes, the help I got was definitely in terms of fixing my thinking. You know, initially, physically, of course, I needed to recover, but that's the easy part. No matter what you're doing in terms of substance, unless you happen to kill yourself physically, which I came close to many times. But once you stop, you recover physically fairly quickly. That's not the issue. The issue is the psychological aspect of it. The reason people go back to drugs is because they just feel so miserable that they can't imagine life the way it is. So they'll take whatever it takes just to get out of that place, even when they know and they cannot help themselves. That is going to destroy them in the long run. But they just have to get out of that burning place that they feel right now. So... That thinking required that what I meant by hitting bottom or that complete surrender. Okay, tell me what to do. A place of utter fear, I felt like I was fearing imminent death if I did not do this. So how they helped me is there, were, there was a program of 12 steps that's quite well known that's used in all addictions and stuff like that. But it's actually brilliant in the way it's put together. 
And the first part is that you admit you're powerless and, and therefore you have to re-examine your core beliefs. And the first thing that you need to do after that is you need to connect to something larger than yourself. You need to feel that you are part of something that's bigger. Now, I was very much against the concept of God. I would not consider it because I saw God the way I was brought up as a religious person, as God being judgmental, in some ways very evil in some ways. You know, how can, how can God send you to hell and burn you over and over and over again for something that I can't help doing? You know, those kind of things. So I, I very much rejected, but they said, well, you have to fake it till you make it. And that's where the miracle that happened to me is I started to think of God in a different way. Maybe God is not what they told me it is. And God, you know, is different for anybody. Even the word God itself like conjures some very negative feelings with some people. But if you just get past that for a second, when you realize that something created you, you may think of it as not a being, maybe it is something, maybe it's life, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. But I started to connect and feel, wait a minute, whatever created me must love me. I mean, what did I pay for my life? When did I sit back and say, you know what, I want to be a man on earth, born at this time with these characteristics, have these friends and family around me and that vision and all these senses that I have and paid for it. When did I ever do that? I didn't. It was gifted to me. So it must be a beautiful thing, whatever it is. And if I am part of that, I need to trust it. I don't know where I came from and I don't know what's going to happen after death. But if it gave me all of this without me even asking or knowing, how can I not trust it? That was fundamental. You can never, I believe in my, today, you can never be truly happy and comfortable in your life if you did not believe that you are fundamentally in a safe place, that you are fundamentally loved, and that no matter what happens, you will be okay. Only then can you be free and free yourself from the worry and the remorse and the expectations and the fear of what might happen, what might not happen, what happens next, feeling sad when you start getting old and you feel like you don't know what's going to happen next. Only then do you get freed from all of that to be able to enjoy life day by day as a gift and start living the way you're meant to live, like a flower opening up like it's meant to open up. So that was one of the very important fundamental steps that I was helped with. And then there were other steps that started to go back and get rid of my, my fears and resentments and angers and all the things that I have done to be able to clear that up, to have a clear conscience and move forward. Brilliant. And then you also talk about how to view and handle challenges and setbacks positively. Can you tell me a bit about that? Is this an extension of what we were just talking about, that sort of trust that things are going to be okay? Yes. Challenges are very unsettling, and they can be very unsettling, and they can range from just discomfort to outright desperation. And the thing with challenges is they never stop coming. It's like playing guacamole. You put one down, another one pops up. You put it down, another one pops up. It doesn't matter. And even if you trick yourself into thinking, well, this one is really, really bad, and if that went away, life would be okay. It is never the case. Something comes out of the blue from the left field you don't expect. And even if the next challenge truly is not as large as the last one, it will become in your mind just as large as the last one because you will be consumed by it. You want to get rid of it. That if you have that perception that challenges are bad and must be gotten rid of. The reality is that challenges is a very healthy part of life. You know, whenever you buy a car or an instrument, you come with an owner's manual that tells you how to do this. When the, when the tank goes down, when there's a beep in the tank, you go fill it up. When this is happening, you go charge the battery and so on. 
we are born and we are far more complex than any other mechanism or organism, but we have no manual. Yes. So the only way we know how to operate ourselves is by the instructions that come to us from life on a day-by-day -day basis. And these instructions are in the form of it feels good, it feels bad. It's like turn left or turn right. So when there's a challenge, life is telling you, I want you to focus on this right now. Fix this. Trust me. Fix this. Now, if I don't learn how to fix it, if I don't know how to fix it, it will keep happening again and again and again and again. If I learn and get past it and grow from it, guess what? I'm going to have another challenge that might be even bigger because I have grown. People say, you know, I've done everything and I've done all, you know, and I've learned my lessons. Why am I getting bigger challenges? Because you're growing. Yes. You're going to a higher state of being. Okay. So I have a technique of handling my challenges. And again, it goes back to the trust that you are part of something bigger that's good, that you trust no matter what happens. So my first rule when you get a challenge, no matter what it is, from losing a job to losing a relationship to health issues to even a death in the family, no matter what it is, the first thing, the first part is trust that everything is going to be okay. Trust that no matter what this is, it is ultimately good in the long run, even if you do not understand it, cannot comprehend it. Even if it's a death in the family, realize that sometimes we lose loved ones because we need in our life other loved ones to come across and we will meet those people again. We have no idea what's going to happen next. You need to trust in life that everything will be okay no matter what. That's rule number one. Number two, mitigate your damages. Just do pragmatically what needs to be done. If your house burned down, make sure you save as much as possible. You go to the insurance, you do this, you do the other thing. If somebody's health, whatever it is, just mitigate the damages logically, hire professionals to help you when needed and so on. The third rule, which is really important, is you ask yourself, what good could possibly come out of this? Don't ask yourself, why did this happen to me? Ask yourself, why did this happen for me? What am I supposed to learn from this? What am I supposed to change in my life to the better of this? Even if there's death in the family, there can be good that come out of that, even if it's incomprehensible. But think about what good come. Well, number one, I could reinforce my bond with my family that's remaining. I can be a support to them and have a closer relationship than I ever could have had otherwise. I can re-examine my life and perhaps what I should be doing different or better. There's always something positive, no matter what it is. Identify what those things are. And then the fourth step of handling the challenges, work on those above all else. Make sure that you move that to the maximum, that you're the best of your ability. And if in fact you end up in a much better place as a result of working on those things, you will always look back at that negative experience as being the impetus that got you to that better place. And you will not have regret in your life and you will not have that anger and remorse that will carry you and plague you in your perspective of life. In fact, it will help you grow and move forward and be able to pass that love to other people and to yourself in your life. Oh, some great, uh, great things there that... Um yeah really resonate so thank you for sharing those really good and a lot of the testimonials for your book talk about the benefit of connecting with our inner child it seems to sort of i, I read a lot of the testimonials and they're very positive and this came up a lot can you tell me a bit more about that if we haven't already covered it or maybe maybe we have yeah i can talk about that because it is actually really very important now, the inner child is that part of us that is innocent and it's playful and, and free-spirited in nature, okay? 
And when we are connected with the world, it allows us to live in the moment and, and experience life as it's meant to be, as I've discussed earlier. Now, sadly, many of us as children may feel traumatized either because of neglect in some cases or tragedy or some trauma that happens. You know, sometimes it's nobody's fault, but it does happen. But if as children, we do not get the guidance from somebody else that helps us understand and put things in perspective and help us connect and bond with the world and feel safe and loved, then we have this hurt that's inside us that stays with us. And it, it stays with us for life. And it, many of us suppress it because we have to go on with life. So I don't want to deal with that bad experience. I don't want to think about it. But it does affect our core beliefs and it does affect our perception and it damages our uh, people, relations, and connections with others. And from all the studies that have been seen, and certainly from my direct experience, is connection to other people is the key sort of happiness, being connected, feeling part of, and so on. So it does affect that. But I also found that there is another very dangerous aspect of it. Sometimes these deep hurts are forgotten, but they stay latent, almost like a latent virus that attacks you later when you are most vulnerable. For example, in my case, when my separation happened in my marriage and I felt like I was betrayed, all of a sudden the pain that I felt from the loss of my sisters came back and I could not cope with it. I could not stand it. I did not know it was there. Later on when I talked, I started to cry and I didn't realize where was this coming from. So sometimes it sits there. So the inner child meditation is a beautiful way of going back and seeing that and being able to heal yourself in those things. So what I do in the meditation, and I'm beginning to record some guided meditations myself with the inner child, is there's magic that happens when you walk around and you start in the meditative state, see yourself when you're like five or six years old. Start remembering what you looked like, how you felt about the way you looked, your hair, your nose, the back of your head, the clothes, the friends, the family, the home. When you start remembering what you were, all of a sudden, like you see your whole life in perspective and you start thinking about all the hurts that you have gone through, all the good experiences and the bad experiences. And you can't help but either feel very proud of that little child or very sad for that little child in other ways. But the one thing is, but just puts in perspective of what that child has been through and you can go back and correct and, and caress and say, this is not your fault. This was never your fault and start healing those things. So it's a very, very powerful way of reaching in and correcting some of these things. So no matter how spiritual you become, no matter how much you move from this point forward in a good way, these things that are inside us come out when you least expect them. So it's really important to go in there and try to clean them up. And you'll end up finding that you bond with yourself more and love yourself more and you start more opening and trusting and engaging and becoming more connected in the world. That's, that's nice. Um, it, it's making me think actually when we're talking, you know, we, when we go through our childhood, we often have, you know, we fall over, we break arms, we have scars that we can see on our body. But when things happen to us that affect our psychological well-being, we still have the scars, but no one can see and we can't even see them ourselves sometimes is it, you know, and I think, so that sort of meditation reaching back, you know, really, I think could, could help to sort of bring some of those things to the surface that we're not aware that we're that baggage that we're carrying around. Is that, have you had that feedback from people? 
Yes, absolutely. I've, I've, I've done sometimes meditations. And one of the last ones that I did was I have a retreat near Toronto and I, and I conducted that meditation and this girl came up to me and, um, she just started to cry as soon as she talked to me and she says, you know, I, I, I don't mean to do anything, but you have no idea how you've changed my life. You know, that little girl, and she started talking about her little girl and she could not stop sobbing. You know, and she felt connected with herself. She felt, another girl told me that she was born in Bosnia and at the age of five or seven, she was separated from her parents and, uh, and didn't see them for another four years. And she says, I live my life today and I'm very successful. I have a big house and all my friends say that I should be very grateful for my life. But I've always felt something was missing. And it was not until I did that meditation that I saw myself as a five-year-old. And you see, I'm breaking goosebumps as I even think about it. She says, and I remembered, I remembered what happened to me. And, and thank you for giving me that conduit to be able to go back and hug my child hug myself and tell myself it was never my fault and be able to heal this thing that I had buried, didn't think about it, did not think it was relevant anymore. And I was just consumed by trying to find happiness, any other means that I can right now, which of course was not, never going to work. And it was just going to get worse and worse and worse. Brilliant. Thank you for that. So, so much I want to talk to you about, but one of the things that I want to move on to next was in, you talk about a higher perspective a higher power and a higher purpose. Do we need to achieve one to get the other? Or, or you know, how, is there sort of a, a hierarchy in those things? Or are they things that we just need to achieve in our life and, and keep in balance? I find them quite intertwined. But I think the first one is that you need to be connected to a higher power concept. There's no... What you talked about in that first step. Yes. Yeah. And there's no way you can have a higher perspective on things unless you have a belief that there's a higher order of some sort. Now, whether you call it higher order, higher power, God, or God-free, as some friends of mine call it, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Don't let that stop you from making that connection. The most important relationship you have in your life that you have from the moment you're born until the moment you pass out. And before and after. Never let go of that. Try to think about it. I, I could not comprehend it because of my scientific, but the God of my understanding today, which I just simply call God because it's just easier word than anything else, is, is something that has no contradiction with anything that's happening unfair or scientific or anything. It's, it's just something that is beautiful, that is very large. So the higher perspective, and, and I give an example in my book about what, what does it mean to have a higher perspective. And I talk about the fact about, about a tree. If you look at any tree, it has flaws. You know, the branches are sometimes bigger on one side, the other. If you were to design it yourself, you might make the branches swirl like more symmetrically and have leaves in every area and looks just magnificent. And then I say, that's why I don't even buy like real trees for Christmas because I cannot hang the ornaments perfectly because they have these <laughs> gaps, you know. <laughs> but if you look at the tree in a forest, they're perfect. There's nothing we can do to make them any better. And the fact that they have these flaws are actually really important part of nature because the openings are there so that birds can fly through it, sun can go through, and clums are there so that they can hide and make nests and protect themselves and so on. There are so many reasons why every tree is the shape it is as part of the bigger order. We cannot comprehend it. And if we try to play with it, we actually will damage things. And looking at our life from that self-centered perspective is like judging it as an individual tree. But every one of us is a perfect piece of this larger order that we are part of. And when we feel 
connected in that. And we see it from that perspective instead, that we are part of this magnificent force that gave us life and everything we ever loved, cherished, or can even imagine in our wildest dreams. When we see ourselves in that context, we feel connected. We feel connected like a tree in a forest. When we don't, we start comparing ourselves to others. And that's when you start going down the rabbit hole. You start saying, why am I not that good? I should have done this. And then you go into the spiral that is horrible, that eventually, progressively, over time, will put you in a very bad place. That's what spirituality is. That's the importance of having that connection with the higher power. And from there, it's quite simple to know what your higher purpose is. Like for me, I know that my higher purpose is trust, take care of myself, worry about what I do today. Now, some people say to me, and this is a question that will come to a lot of people, how can I be ambitious if I just trust and not control? How can I, you know, do good in the world if I feel that I have no control over what happens or I should not be happy or sad no matter what the outcome is? And I say to them that there's a difference between being invested in the process versus being invested in the outcome. Yeah. You know? So you do the best that you can. You put you, I put my passion in things. I want to do the best that I can in something. But once I've done that, guess what? My job is finished. It doesn't matter what happens after. It doesn't matter what comes back. That's outside of my control. It's like whatever this God or whatever this thing gave me life, it is my gratitude, my expression of gratitude that I do my best. That's it. Once you've done it, that's it. If you live life that way, you will be as ambitious and as successful as possible, but you will not be dragged down by the burden and worry of this should have happened, that should have happened, I wonder if this will happen, I want to control this, I want to anticipate this. And while you're doing that, life is just passing you by. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. It's that future and the past, isn't it? Just dragging us into, uh, into black holes. And, and if, we, if we haven't already covered them, and we may well have, what would you say if somebody's listening today and they're, you know, they're, it's resonating with them and they want to make this change, what would you say are the three sort of most important things that they can do today to live a happier life? Okay. So I can, do, I can summarize them in three ways. First, number one is you have to believe. You have to believe that you're something that's much bigger than we can comprehend, let alone control. And you also, in that belief, you have to understand that it loves you. No matter what it is, whether you can comprehend it or not, it loves you because it gave you life and everything that you have for free. This was not, you were not entitled to that. This was a gift. So believe that you are part of something bigger that loves you. The second part is that we can trust that everything is going to work out okay. Whether we think this is horrible or I don't understand what good come out of this one, you have to trust that no matter what your perspective is, everything is going to work out okay because it always did and always will, even if you think it isn't. You want to trust that that's the case. There's no point being angry or resentful or regretful or worrying about things. And the third rule is take good care of yourself. That's all that you're responsible for. Take care of yourself physically. Take care of yourself mentally, as I mentioned. Just doing those things is a full-time job yes. to really take good care of sleeping well and eating well and being mentally engaged and getting rid of your resentments and having close relationships and all of these things. And enjoy life to the fullest. Don't let it pass you by. Seize the moment. Spend time with friends and enjoy the food. Enjoy. There are ways and techniques that I talk about in the book and how you can put all of that. And I actually say in the book that a lot of people spend years and years, 10 years, 15 years to learn a career. 
to become happy, sort of, to speak. But actually, it would take more time than that to learn how to live one day beautifully. Yeah. One day. Because it's all about living the day at a time. See, I, I believe that life will give you opportunities for as long as you're alive. It's like a conveyor belt that never ends. But when we are consumed with our goals, we miss it. These things that are coming on the conveyor belt actually hit us in the face, even if they're blessings. But especially if we regard them as challenges, we're irritated because we're consumed by a goal and this is stopping us, this is slowing us down. And we're missing that the conveyor belt is the gifts that are priceless, that are meant for us at this time. And so the best that I can do is to be paying attention to it and be in the best shape to be able to recognize them and take advantage of them. Brilliant. Thank you for that. That's excellent. Okay, now let's talk about the book. So the book is called Higher. And what came, obviously this is a show um, about speaking for speakers. And what came first? Was it the book or was it the speaking for you? Uh, I used to do a lot of public speaking in my business. You know, I used to do a lot of presentations and I used to write technical newsletters and so on. But in this aspect of it, it started by sharing with people, talking with a lot of people, getting different perspectives and opinions and examining my own core values and so on. So there's that kind of speaking, but those are not really public speaking engagements. And I started out by writing a few articles, just ideas, you know, a thought that comes to mind as we talk about right now, what is the importance of a higher power? How can, you know, how can you let go of a religious sense if that's an obstacle for you to finally find that connection otherwise? When I wrote this series of articles, I shared them with some friends and some people that I know that are psychologists and psychiatrists and so on and through my life. And they said to me, he says, Charles, you have to write a book. I said, okay, I'm like, eventually I will. And I had about like, you know, 75 pages of, of things, you know, like they were all like three, four page articles. And I said, well, how much material do you need? I said, well, you know, maybe 300, 400 pages. Says, Nobody wants to read that 300, 400 pages. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, how many pages do you think it should be? She goes, 150. I said, 150? Then I'm halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> so I went home. I said, okay, if I was to write a book, what would it be? What would it be about? And then I came up with the concept of the higher perspective, power, and purpose. And then I said, okay, this would be the purpose of it. And I started to artic, uh, like do, a, do a, a schematic of what it should be formed and what are the arguments. And once I had that layout, that infrastructure, I started to say, okay, this article fits here. That article fits here. That article fits here. And I continued to write. And when I wrote, kind of like I knew where it fit in the book. And then after a while, I found, okay, you know what, this looks interesting. I'm going to get somebody to give me a fresh perspective on it. So I gave it somebody to edit it. And they came and said back and said, well, what do you mean by this? It's missing here, it's missing that. So I continued to write. And then the span of about four or five months, I finished the book. Brilliant. But I got to say that I also finished it at a time when I was in a really good place. And we're not always in a really good place. No matter what we know, no matter how much wisdom we have. You know, life is like being a gardener. If you are the best gardener in the world, you'll still have a horrible garden if you don't go every day and remove the weeds and take care of it. It's true. <laughs> and true. sometimes we procrastinate and sometimes, and sometimes life being good sometimes is really a curse because you start to procrastinate and then you kind of lose that peace of mind. But I wrote it from a very good place. And as a result, I myself read it from time to time. 
Yes, it seems to be, you know, you mentioned that life doesn't come with a manual. A lot of people have said that, you know, they, they, they use your book as a sort of reference and, and you know, or just a reminder of, of, of maybe it may be like a manual of how to sort of uh, see things and view things. And then, and then where, so when did the speaking, did the, did the book take off and then you started speaking about it or, or did it, how did that happen? Yes, <clears throat> I got asked a lot. I was interviewed by radio stations throughout North America. I think I had about 80 to 100 interviews that way. Wow. Um, I was asked by people that know me personally to speak at various events. I have not put myself out there really professionally yet because I've been kind of uh, getting ready to do that, to tell you honestly. I still want to write another book that expands on hire. I also have a book that I have started writing higher, but for adolescents, children Uh, 12 to 18 years of age who feel in many ways, but they're not responsible for those feelings, but a lot of them feel that they are responsible and they should be ashamed and they should be this and they should be that. And I want to give them an insight as to how magnificent a gift a life they have and how they can change things and that they're not responsible for how they feel or whatever happened to them at the the stage. So I really, really want to do that. Then I'm going to start doing some seminars and talking and that I think will unfold over the next couple of years. Cool. And so when you started to, cause I've seen you, there's, you know, there's videos of you on quite big stages to, you know, quite significant size audiences. Um, was that a different feeling to when you gave those technical presentations? Did you, was, was it more nerve wracking to do that about this, which I guess means more to you in some ways? <laughs> no, I think, um, whenever I speak, I always ask myself, why is this important to the audience? What is a message that I am giving? Um, and I always remind myself that this is about the message, not the messenger. This is not about me looking good or sounding intelligent or showing that I have great insight. It's got nothing to do with me. If I am there wholeheartedly in my heart because I want to help other people, and that's all that's at stake. It's not how I look, but, but being, putting the message across. That's going to be very fundamentally important. So believing in the message and then having a structure as to why to make it easy to understand and kind of compelling in terms of your arguments so that even people that are skeptic can kind of see through that and say, wow, okay, there's a point here that I can latch onto. What next? Um, so I was, you know, uh, you're, you're always nervous nonetheless. You know, but I, I, I make myself less nervous when I remind myself, it's not about you, Charles. It's not about you. <laughs> Absolutely. It's your ego that's coming in the way as it always does. And, uh, and then you become comfortable with it. So I don't think there was any difference between my technical presentations and that. I think it was the same passion, the same fears, the same uh, presentations. I think my public speaking with regards to this is at its infancy right now. And I am confident that I will become far more effective in short order as I do more of this, as I experienced with my business world. Cool. And do you, in the talks that you have done, I guess it's, you know, the stories must play a big part because it's this excerpts from your life. Do you use humor as well? I mean, when we've been talking, you've been, you know, quite lighthearted at times and it's quite a serious subject. Do you, do you intentionally use uh, humor and stories in your talks that you do about, about the hire in the book? Yes, I think humor really connects people a lot. Like it's one of the great uh, connection between people. And we are 
humorous creatures. We do things that are really quite funny. And, and that's what humor is all based about is we do things that we all do. But when you really step back and look at it from a different perspective, it looks funny. So it's a way of emphasizing how the perspective on it can make it look ridiculous when you really kind of look at life from a different, from a different way. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I love humor. I love to be able to inject it whenever I can, but without taking away from the seriousness of the subject. Yeah. 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 And I guess it's, you know, I always say when, you know, when you have a serious subject, the audience does need that light relief as well. It can't be, you know, a hundred percent, you know, serious all the time. So it gives them a bit of relief as you take them on that journey. Yeah. So yes, good point. Okay. And, and, they need, and they need the connection with you. So yeah. they need to feel that you're human like them, that you're also vulnerable like them, but that the message is what's really important. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's coming from somebody like me. Yeah. yeah. You're not floating on a cloud, Charles. <laughs> that was your no. enlightenment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's what I did wrong in my first part of my life is I felt that if I was to float on a cloud and people would respect me and admire me and go all of that, that I would be very happy. And I found that I was all alone. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a happy place. No. <laughs> That's not what you want to do. <laughs> no. Brilliant. Well, thank look, thank you for sharing all that great stuff. Now I've got a few standard questions I just want to ask you before I uh, finish by letting people know how they can get out of the book and you and so on. So the yeah. first one is I, I always ask uh, speakers, have uh, you know, what's speaking done for you? Or I guess in this case, what's it do you think it's gonna be doing for you and your message in the future as well? I can tell you what writing the book has done for me, if that uh -huh. answers the question. When I started to write the book, I thought I was simply doing an information dump. I'm explaining what I've learned. I had no idea that there was nothing further from the truth. It's almost like doing a thesis or a PhD where you put a question out there and you go out and you do the research and the study and the analysis and then you present your findings. Writing the book made me examine life again from a different perspective. I started to look at my life, what happened to me, and I started to see things that in a far clearer manner than I ever thought before. And one of the things, for example, that came very clear to me is that the things that I wanted the most in my life, a lot of times turned out to be the worst things that happened to me. The things that I feared most in my life turned out to be the best thing that happened to me. I started to realize that no matter what I tried and all the effort that I did to get one place or the other were all a waste of time that life was magnificent. And if I had just taken care of myself rather than work like 70, 80 hours a week to make sure that my business, for example, succeed and so on, I might have been even far more successful because I could have seen opportunities that I was completely blind to. So it really reinforced and made me see things. So I learned a lot from writing the book. It helped me grow tremendously. Brilliant. And then um, looking at your speaking, you know, throughout your life, have you had a bad gig have, is there been one that you've just gone, oh, no, that was, that was really bad? <laughs> Anything that you could learn from that? Um, not in terms of large speaking engagement. I was in, in a group meetings a lot of time, and then I would say something, and then I'd say, what, what did I just say? <laughs> Logical. <laughs> so that might have happened from time to time. But, but we all have those moments. And the thing is to be forgiving of yourself. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. We're all human beings and we are capable of making mistakes. And what you do is you just like tap yourself on your shoulder and says, you know what, your heart was in the right place. You'll do better next time. And that's fine. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> and you learn from it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And now, aside from your book, what is the one book that you've read in your life that's had most impact and why? 
well, funny enough, one of the most influential books in my life was the was uh, about democracy. All right. And I read it when I was studying my MBA, and I became a um, uh, a conservative in my views about how uh, you know people should be accountable and things of that nature. It did influence my life quite a bit. I have tempered my views quite a bit, so I consider myself a centrist today. Whereas, so that's been very, very big influential uh, book for me. And what was the name of that book, just out of interest? Can you remember? No, I don't. It's a, it was a very small book. I remember blue cover and it says Principles of Democracy or something like that. Ah, interesting. Okay, cool. And what's the best bis- bit of business advice you've ever had and why? Um, there are many. I mean, I, I have a whole section in higher about how to be successful in business because oh, nice. I was very good at that. But one of the things that was said to me very early on, which I have never forgotten, and that is it is better to hit with a crooked stick than spend all the time to straighten it out. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and I have hired many people that came from very large organizations that made hundreds of thousands per, per year salaries that are very well you know trained and in big corporations and so on but in an entrepreneurial environment did not survive because they were consumed by trying to make things perfect and build and build before they actually go out to the market but instead what you should do is just go out in the market and hit with the crooked stick and see what comes out what sticks because you will never know what works and what doesn't work you may have the most brilliant idea and legitimately something that should be extremely successful and still may never work because of things that you could never have anticipated. I love that crooked stick. I've heard it in many ways, you know, speed of implementation and lots of things, but I, I, love, uh, I love the crooked stick. I'm going to remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the last, last question for you. If you could have any mentor, and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? My mentor is my... Uh, my image of of god that i have in my meditation um i go see my inner child a lot and many times i will just carry him or hold him by the hand and i'll go to a secret garden my private garden and i'll go around the bend and i have this image of god that appears to me as a human not that i think he is but it's almost like a hologram and i ask him a lot of times god help me how can i what should i do next and he's never failed me. And he always looked at me and says, Charles, the only thing you need to do is to love and respect yourself. And that's what you're doing right now. So just keep doing that. I and like that. that. Yeah. I like that. I like that. It's good. And I guess in some ways your inner child is your guide that's taking you to the place where you meet that, that God. Yeah, my inner child become my emotions. Yeah. You know, like a lot of times we know the answers to things, but we don't know how to do them for ourselves. We can give advice to others, but we can never take it ourselves. Why? Because our emotions are involved. With the inner child, you separate your emotions from your intellect, and you realize that they are both legitimate and they don't necessarily align. But when you are loving a a child of yours, like your son or your sister or so on, you realize that you can caress them with their emotions, even if it doesn't make sense, but they are legitimate and you need to take care of them and you use your wisdom to how to grow it. So having the inner child has been my guidance in sort of separating my emotions from my intellect to be able to acknowledge them both and grow. Brilliant. Well, Charles, thank you so much. I really appreciate everything you shared. Now, 
if people want to find out more about the book and perhaps book you to speak or to find out a way of working with you, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, probably my website is the best place, which can be reached by uh, typing hirebook.com or charleshanna.com, either one of them. And in my website, I have all my news releases. I have many little video snippets. I have links to my talks, uh, my book testimonials and, and interviews and stuff like that. So that'll probably be the best place, hirebook.com. Brilliant. And I'll put the links in the show notes as well so people can find it there. And presumably they can also get the book on Amazon or other places. Yes, it's available everywhere. It's also, I recorded it, by the way, and the audiobook version early this year. And I was really fortunate to have uh, Joan Cusack, uh, the actress, uh, very well known for many people that are as old as me, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And she just narrated the openings to some chapters, but I narrated the book itself. And uh, so you can have it in audiobook format or electronic format or in hardcover. Brilliant. Uh, And are you on any social media if people want to connect with you, Twitter or Instagram or anything like that? Yes, I am on Facebook and Twitter, Charles G. Hanna. And uh, uh, actually on Twitter, I uh, believe it's Hanna underscore higher, but you can find all those links on my website anyway. Brilliant. All right. Excellent. Well, Charles, I know, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I know that it's actually a holiday. It's Thanksgiving in Canada today. So on your holiday, you've given time up. So really appreciate that. And I wish you more success in spreading the words uh, of wisdom from, from your book and your experience in life. And uh, I look forward to um, catching you speak sometime, hopefully in person. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you today. There you go. There's another man with a big vision. And I think it's fascinating how much baggage we carry around that sometimes we're not even aware of. I know I've had it in my life, you know, it's going on and it has stopped me. And I, you know, if we can get out of our own way and focus on the process, we're so much more likely to achieve what we want. Oh, that and hitting with our crooked stick. (laughs) I love that. Go and check out Charles's site and Charles's book, Higher. I'm sure you're going to love it. I'm sure you're going to find it useful in your life. Thank you again so much for listening to the show. And if you know anyone you think would enjoy the Speaking Club, get benefit and value from listening, go ahead and share, tell them about it. And if you are a regular listener and haven't yet left a review, I would be very grateful and chuffed to bits if you could take a couple of minutes go to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review about the show. I read them all and it makes a big difference to to me and also to anyone that's looking, it will be something that they'll use as a guide to whether to listen. So please go ahead and do that for me if you get value out of this show. So all that's left for me to say is have a great rest of the week. It's almost the weekend. Uh, Go and grab your life. Buy the nuts this week and weekend and get cracking. Bye-bye. If you want to discover how to create a killer pitch that makes you or your business stand out from the crowd, then you'll want to grab your copy of my book, Straight to the Top. It will help you clarify your USP, your business story, who your target market is, and what will make them buy. You'll discover how to get the edge on the competition and position your offer for success. You'll also get proven elevator and investor pitch frameworks to use for maximum impact. 
To get the book for free plus lots of extra bonuses, you just pay shipping and handling, go to standoutpitch.com today.